Hey, welcome back to another episode of JavaScript Jabber. This week on our panel, we have Dan Shapir. Hey, from Tel Aviv. Now in Technicolor. Yeah. He just got a new computer with a new camera. Exactly. So yeah, we also have Steve Edwards. Hello from the warm desert era of Arizona. Nice. I'm Charles Maxwood from Top Ben Devs. I just got back from Amsterdam. We have a special guest this week, and that is Josh Goldberg. Uh, Josh, you want to introduce yourself? I don't know if we've had you on before. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if you have. But hi, I'm Josh. I work in open source full time, mostly in the TypeScript ecosystem. I was actually just in Amsterdam right before Chuck and then in Timisoara, Romania. So I'm glad to be back home in Philly. I'm tired. Oh, Timisoara is lovely. Amsterdam is also lovely, but uh, yeah, that's obvious. Yeah. Yeah, I had a good time. Um, yeah, I was there for Rails World. I don't know what you were there for, Josh. But... Uh, React Live. And then prior to that, uh, IE in, in Dublin. So I'm, I'm oh, yeah. post-conferencing right now. I thought, wow. I think I might have uh, already watched your talk from there. Great. Maybe, I don't know. Maybe I'm confusing it with some other talk. It seems a bit, you know, quick for the talk to be up already. I'll need to check. Yeah. So anyway, the story here is basically that I figured out that I wasn't checking the DMs on the JavaScript Jabber Twitter account. <laughs> and Josh had told me about interesting stuff that he was doing on that same account. And so I got on and it had been a few months and I was like, no, this is cool. We should get you on. So, uh, Josh, yeah, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Now, um, you're talking to us about um, the, what is it? It's the TypeScript, uh, NS, or no, ESLint, something, right? Am I in the right ballpark? You are, yes. I like hearing people... Uh, suffer and struggle with our naming, but yes, it's TypeScript ESLint, the tooling that lets you allow, pardon, the tooling that allows you to run ESLint and prettier and similar uh, TypeScript code. Can I should have just confidently that, said that, but I didn't. <laughs> can, can we slightly digress before we go there? Because you mentioned up right up front that you're 100% into open source, and I'm really curious about how, you know, what's it like? How are you making this work? It's very scattered, but I really enjoy it a lot. And it's less different from my old full-time jobs than I would have thought. Um, Instead of working on tooling projects, work in general for a specific company or set of companies, like when I was doing consulting, instead I work on GitHub projects, which may or may not have other people working on them or even using them. So my day-to-day is a lot of going to my GitHub notifications, Lazing through a bunch of issues and pull requests, uh, doing dev marketing and DevRel on Twitter and so on. Uh, the money is not nearly as good, but I really, really, really like what I do. And I think I have a positive impact on the world and community, I think. So I'm, I'm having a great time. And where is the money coming from, if I might ask? A little bit from GitHub sponsors. I have a personal sponsors page. Uh, TypeScript BSLint itself has an open collective, which is quite a bit more money than my personal. Um, once in a while, I'll dip into consulting if I start to worry about the money. And then also, I wrote the Learning TypeScript book from O'Reilly. So that gives me monthly royalties, too. Oh, that's really cool. An author. Published. Yeah. Yes. A lot of people, uh, a lot of people reference books on TypeScript. And it's, it's nice. I think mine is currently the, the main one that people use to get into it if they haven't written any TypeScript or any other language beyond JavaScript before. So I'm, I'm very proud of that. I'm curious, are you teaching TypeScript 
to pe to people that you assume already know JavaScript, or is it teaching TypeScript as a whole new language? It's the former, yeah. Uh, I assume you have some level of JavaScript. It doesn't have to be super advanced. You don't need to know things like symbols and disposables. But, pardon me, the uh, the new using syntax. <laughs> yeah. The, the art of teaching TypeScript is trickier, much trickier, if the person doesn't already know JavaScript. It's, I think it's possible to write a book that teaches both, but it's much quicker and I think more clean to assume a bit of JavaScript first, because that's how TypeScript works. It builds on top of JavaScript instead of replacing it. So if someone were to ask you, basically, let's say, say I want to get into front-end software development, I don't know any programming, I want to do it myself, you know, not going to a bootcamp, whatever, would you recommend to them to first learn JavaScript and then learn TypeScript? That is my kind of default starting recommendation. I have worked with people who just went into TypeScript first. It's not an impossible path. Um, there's a Twitch streamer, Jen Junot, who is going through my book now with me, and she knew no JavaScript beforehand. But for the most part, I really recommend people try to learn one thing or area of things at a time. In this case, learn a programming language, learn the concept of for loops, if statements, functions, and so on, and then also add on the concept of a type system on top. That being said, TypeScript is really useful for people who are learning to code because it gives you a lot of really nice hints and suggestions and tooling before your code crashes annoyingly. So it's not a one-size-fits-all. I just have a general starting recommendation. Yeah, it's interesting that when my son studied the computer science in university, he's just wrapping up his studies, by the way, uh, they first uh, learned uh, Python as the, the language for the 101 CS class, and then they moved on into Java to learn about types. Um, so, mm -hmm. so in a way, they kind of uh, match that sequence that you're describing. Um, and also out of curiosity, you mentioned like multiple open source projects. So it's not just uh, uh, TypeScript ESLint, it's other projects as well? Yeah, uh, the TypeScript ESLint is the main one. Um, I have been working for the last year or so on originally called Template TypeScript Node Package, now the slightly less annoying name of Create TypeScript App, which is a good default starter that can also set up a lot of really good tooling. Um, at time of recording, I am about two weeks overdue for some commitments I'd made to the ESLint project itself. Sorry, Nicholas and everyone else who is waiting and probably <laughs> patient with me. Uh, but for the most part, it's a few big projects, mainly TypeScript ESLint, and then a lot of really small utilities that I've written or joined on that uh, most other people wouldn't have used or heard of. So if we're moving back to the main topic of discussion, which is TypeScript ESLint, and you mentioned that you also work on the ESLint project, I guess that means that these two projects are distinct. Can you both describe what TypeScript ESLint is and how it relates to ESLint? ESLint is a project that uh, is the standard JavaScript linter these days. There are other linters out there, but ESLint is the most popular and well-known one by far. In my personal headcanon and terminology, a linter is a tool that runs a set of discrete checks in your source code, or rules. Each of those rules checks for one specific issue, such as an unused variable, and then may optionally provide autofixes or suggestions for how to fix if and when it finds complaints. ESLint is really extensible, configurable, pluggable, whatever you want to call it. There are a bajillion plugins out there, things for personal style conventions, framework-specific rules, for example, React's plugin rules. Uh, pardon me, React's rules of hooks are a very popular plugin. But ESLint just works on JavaScript, natively at least. You can add in different parsers, but 
by default, ESLint only understands for JavaScript syntax. One of the very popular, in fact, the most popular parser, I believe, is the TypeScript parser, which is one of the packages we in the TypeScript ESLint project provide, which, as you said, yes, is a separate project, different GitHub org, different governance, different set of maintainers. Um, I'm a core maintainer on TypeScript ESLint and just so happened to have committed a few times to ESLint itself. So we're very much separate projects. Um, we're not enemies in any way. It's not like we intend to be separate. It's just that they have very different needs as projects, and TypeScript ESLint actually uh, is much more recent than ESLint itself. Back in the day in the TypeScript community, we had a separate project called TSLint, which was a completely separate implementation of a linter written solely for TypeScript in TypeScript. And thank heavens, we have deleted all that duplicate code and aligned on using ESLint with extensibility options, such as a new parser for TypeScript. So TypeScript ESLint takes ESLint, builds on top of it, and extends it to support TypeScript beyond JavaScript, correct? So it's not like a completely, it's a distinct project in the sense that you're working on a separate like repo, but it's not distinct in the sense that the two do work together. Um, yes. My only caution with the phrasing there is that we are a parser and a plugin, just like many other parsers and plugins are. For example, there's a plugin that provides you rules for React code specifically. And we are a plugin, among other things, that provides rules for TypeScript code specifically. There are other parsers, and we are a parser. So you're still running ESLint. You still do npx ESLint dot or similar. It's just your ESLint config. If you want to work on TypeScript code, will generally include references to the TypeScript ESLint parser and plugin. So if you were to use this, if you're using TypeScript in a project, then you're only using this instead of the standard ESLint when you're installing? No, you're using the standard ESLint. But you're telling I mean, ESLint... Do you need to download that as well as your project? Or does your project take care of that in terms of dependencies? We don't have any fancy schmancy initializer that wraps around ESLint or does that. You have to install and configure ESLint and then also install and configure us. By the way, I realize this is very annoying and cumbersome to listen to, let alone to do on your computer. <laughs> no one is thrilled that this is the state of the art and the ESLint team is working on a long-term overhaul that'll make all this stuff easier. But for now, what I've just described is somewhat the, the, the current state of things. So before we go too much farther, can we, for those that might be uninitiated, can we describe what a linter is? Um, just to clarify, it is not the stuff that you pull out of your dryer that clogs up your dryer. That's a different kind of lint. Um, I think my, my thought of uh, a linter definition is basically something that helps you format and, and make your code nice and neat. Is that a proper way to say it? That's more of a prettier. Or maybe a linter is just sort of to catch some errors and things like that. How would you define a linter? I mean, I know what it is, but I can't describe it, I guess. Sure. You've activated my trap card. One of the big tirades mm -hmm. I've been going on and seeing at conferences is that there are three really common forms of static analysis in the web space today. Linting, formatting, and type checking. I would say that the three are distinct and one should use different tools for each of them. Even if the CLI or wrapper is the same, just the three are separate implementations. A formatter is a tool that looks at your source code and completely reformats, messes with your semicolons, and tabs, and spaces, and new lines, all that. Now, a formatter is able to be very quick and should be super simple because all it does is reformat your code. It doesn't change your logic. It doesn't catch bugs. By simple, I mean from the user side. It's actually rather complex to write a formatter, very difficult on the inside. 
But that is completely separate from the concept of a linter, which runs a set of discrete checks that look for, say, logical issues or stylistic inconsistencies. And fun fact, ESLint has rules that can catch formatting concerns, and it has had them for quite a while. And part of the reason why is that when it first came out, there was no prettier. There's actually a research paper that had to be published for people to figure out how to write a thing like prettier first. But now ESLint has decided they're going to deprecate the core formatting rules. They're being moved to a separate community author plugin so that ESLint core just deals with uh, logical issues and the occasional stylistic. Does that answer what you're looking for? Uh, and you did give before several examples of some of the issues that the linter might catch. I'll give a few more. For example, using um, let when you should be using const, um, not uh, uh, using the same variable in an internal and external scope, um, uh, other unreachable code potentially. Um, Let's see if I can think of some more off the top of my head. If you, the the variable naming, like for example, you're using, uh, uh, you know, uh, not not camel case, but something else. Uh, you you you're you know, uh, you should be using Pascal case for classes and camel case for variables. If you're not, not doing that, are there other examples that I'm missing that are really common? Yeah, but before I give my one note, you bring up a really interesting point that uh, those are a, a lot of those are stylistic concerns. And developers tend to get a little uh, rough when we try to force stylistic concerns on them. So a lot of the linter maintainers, such as myself, have been working a little bit less on style things and a little bit more on logical things like catching bugs. That's not to say they're not valid. In my create TypeScript app repo, I have lint rules that sort everything for me and do all sorts of style stuff. It's just really hard to get that in a way that people like. But one of the big advantages of TypeScript ESLint, running ESLint on TypeScript code, is that if you're using a TypeScript code base, you're able to assume that you can use TypeScript's type information. So you can write lint rules that use type information to make really, really intelligent, sharp deductions on your code. For example, uh, my favorite rule is no floating promises, which says if you do something that creates a promise, that promise needs to be handled in some way. It can't just float off into the distance and potentially unhandled process exception crash. It needs to be awaited or have a dot .catch or be passed to a variable or something. Uh, we also have a rule that detects an unnecessary await. So if you do something like await some function call, but that function isn't an async function and doesn't return a promise, then you could probably just remove that await. TBD. Yeah, it's important to, to note that it's perfectly legal JavaScript code. Uh, that it will work. Uh, it will effectively wrap the result in the promise, as I recall. Uh, but um, uh, but like you said, it's effectively pretty useless and probably not what you intended. It's likely the result of some refactoring that somebody forgot to take it all the way. Yeah, exactly. And one of the big benefits of a linter, or using a lot of linter rules the way I do, is that when you refactor and you have stuff that's left over, it can catch a lot of those little excess things that might have been okay when they were first written, but because of your refactoring are no longer particularly valuable. So in a sense, one of the many purposes of a linter can be to help you refactor your code and get a little more confidence in your rewrites. How about too long or too complex functions? Where would you put that? Ooh, probably those are the ones I hate, by the way. Oh yeah, if you hate a lint rule, that's a sign that that lint rule shouldn't be enabled on your code base. Oh, yeah, <laughs> um, sure. 
there's a difference between having an opinion and then wanting that opinion to be enforced by a particular part of your dev process. Uh, I personally really like small, not tiny, but relatively small files, functions, and so on. But it's roughly impossible to make a lint rule that can uh, delineate a fine line and exact, this is the cutoff. You know, 100 lines, that's where I draw the line. So I'd say maybe push that into like a soft guidance note in your team documentation and ask people to check it in overview. I'd probably, look, the, the, the rules that I value the most, the rule that I value the most is consistency. So I probably like have like a, like an inverse type process where the tool first analyzes the existing code base, figures out the rules that match that in- existing code base, and then enforce them enforces them going forward. That's really interesting. This feels like it's better suited for a uh, tooling that is not based on hard measurements, but on vibes, on on general soft thoughts. Uh, so actually, I really hate to bring up AI because we're talking about tooling that does is not a good suit uh, for AI. <laughs> but yeah, like the human part of things, what you just described, I think is where I'd put that concern. It's like uh, I see some. Co- I'm the, I'm one of those people that prefers functions, the the function keywords for named functions. But I see a lot of code uh, uh, code bases where people use arrow functions for named functions as well. So they would have like const x equals an arrow function, and that's the way they declare functions. And even though I dislike this approach, if that's the way the code base is written, that's how I will write my code. So it's because otherwise you're bringing up, you know, somebody who reads the code later later on starts asking themselves, why is this code written differently than the rest of the code? Does it indicate some uh, behavioral or functional difference that often doesn't actually exist and so forth? So consistency is the number one concern. So a rule like that, like looking at the code base, figuring out that that code base, like mostly uses arrows for named functions and then enforces that going forward. That would be cool for my, in my book, but you know, I digress. Mm-hmm. Well, in some of the linters I've used in other languages, that's effectively what they do. And so when they enforce it, though, they have the option to fix it, right? Which yeah. is a format or not a linter, according to what Josh is telling us. Well, well, it's very, it's a very difficult line to delineate. In theory, right. formatters would only do things that don't change your AST or abstract syntax tree, the representation of what is actually in your code file. But there are some concerns that do have a different AST, such as a named function versus an arrow function versus and so on. But like they don't really change your code. So if you look at the code and it doesn't use any of the features that would care about which one you used, you could probably fix it. But yeah, that generally... Could be... eh. That could be really challenging to figure out in some cases because the hoisting rules, for example, are different and it might be really tricky to make sure that you're not introducing bugs uh, if you try to automatically reformat the code in that way. Yeah. Uh, ESLint rules uh, can alternately either or both of fix and suggest. They can provide a fix that is safe. It is mm-hmm. marked as, unless we have a bug, this is okay to dash dash fix automatically. They can also provide suggestions. Like the, uh, the, the unnecessary await rule I mentioned will provide a suggestion for removing the awaits, but it won't actually automatically do that. It's not a dash dash right. fix fix because that actually does change your code slightly. And maybe you had a reliance on that extra process tick from the unnecessary await and fixing it would actually destroy your entire application. Who knows? I have to ask, though, given that, well, 
AJ likes to say, who is not here on the show today, unfortunately, likes to say that TypeScript is a superset of a subset of JavaScript. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But but effectively, it is, in most cases, a superset. Why not just use TypeScript ESLint? Why do I even need ESLint? I mean, why don't I treat everything as being TypeScript, sometimes with missing types? Great question. Especially, uh, by the way, if I'm using, let's say, JSTOC inside JS files. Great question. So we, we had that. That's what TSLint was. I, I was a maintainer, not a creator, but a maintainer on TSLint. But the problem then was that you have a lot of people who still do write JavaScript without TypeScript and a lot of tooling built on JavaScript, not TypeScript. Because JavaScript is an open standard, ignoring the fact that some company happens to open the trademark, so we have to call it ECMAScript. JavaScript is the thing that runs in browsers. Whereas TypeScript is one example of how one might extend JavaScript. It is not a standard. It's owned by Microsoft. Fun fact, did you know Microsoft used to have a not stellar reputation among developers? I blows, blows them. <laughs> uh, so we, we really don't want to... Yeah. Been long there, long. done that. Yeah. I don't know. I Embrace extend, extinguish. <laughs> yeah, so even if Microsoft was perfect, if every developer at the company was as wholesome and wonderful and smart as Satya Nadella, their current CEO, who people tend to like, myself included, it's still a specific company's thing. So we don't want to build tooling that forces everyone to be writing one company's specific language. In fact, I'm looking forward to competitors of TypeScript because TypeScript is a decade plus old project and you know it has limitations as a result of that age. And I look forward to the next round of cool stuff we can do. But I, anyway, I digress. Yes, we used to have TSLint and then because we still needed the stuff to work on standard native JavaScript, you'd have two implementations of everything. Two implementations of your linter, two implementations of the added rule fixers, two implementations of the React rules of hooks, the ESLint plugin and TSLint for React. It was a pain in the butt. So now we've duplicated a lot of the uh, code. And if they ever diverge, it makes it harder to swap back and forth between if you convert to or from TypeScript and JavaScript. And before you ask, why would you ever convert from TypeScript to JavaScript? Well, that happens once in a while. DHH so. for the win. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Also, uh, to an extent, Svelte gets, although the story yeah, there is very Svelte different. RSO, yeah. Svelte. So that, that's a whole other topic. Svelte is Svelte get, they're still using TypeScript. They're just oh, yeah, using a just different syntax stuff. for the types. Yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. Well, and they still support it on the front end if users want to use it. It was just in their core that they made the changes. Yeah. I would even say every, almost every JavaScript developer today, even if they never touch TypeScript, is still benefiting from the language because it's built oh, into yeah. editors such as VS Code. Yeah. Well, sure. yeah. I mean, I'm I'm a Vue user myself. I you know I do the views on Vue podcast, and Vue three was all written in TypeScript from the ground up. <clears throat> and and but it's beyond that. It's the browser DOM, uh, the uh, Node APIs, uh, Express, whatever. They all come with TypeScript bindings these days. So and you know the type definition files, and you're benefiting from TypeScript even if you're not using TypeScript at all. Like when that all Profuffle, you know, on on the Twitter Spaces X, whatever happened, I kind of uh, shit tweeted that uh, my ideal development environment is I'm doing JavaScript and every develop- other developer in the world does TypeScript because <laughs> because then I get the total freedom and everybody else has to you know provides me with all the type information that I might need. That's really funny. I like that. I'm sure the reactions you got were polite. 
<laughs> but anyway, yeah. you asked a question. I was uh, sorry. I keep getting excited and distracted. Uh, yeah. So we had that. It was a pain in the butt. Now we deduplicated. So it's the ESLint core and other languages such as TypeScript can be added on. It can be plugged in with stuff such as TypeScript ESLint. Um, you can you can use TypeScript ESLint on ESLint code. It's just we provide a lot of niceties that get added in if you have type information enabled on your pages. By the way, again, as an aside, do you have an opinion on the type specifications proposal for uh, ECMAScript? I do. I think you can probably guess what that opinion is based on the giant grin on my face. I'm really excited about it. Um, I think that the proposal type is really annotations. smart. That's, that's uh, the phrase, type annotations, not that's sure. what I said before. It's all the same to me. The, the general idea is the syntax or annotations, the essentially glorified comments, is something that will be built into JavaScript. So there will be less difference between what you write in TypeScript land, write in JavaScript, or run in JavaScript land. But the concept of a type checker is still up to the developer. So TypeScript or it, one of its competitors, so to speak, or future equivalents can still innovate in the type checking space and perhaps even type syntax space. But if we reach this nirvana in what will presumably be at least five to 10 years from now, likely more, where you can write code that has full TypeScript type declarations inside of it and not have to transpile it into something else to run it, that will be really nice. So I hope that's the world we're heading towards. Cool. Uh, by the way, Gil Tayao was a guest on, uh, on this podcast a while back, uh, talking about uh, ES modules, I think. Uh, is one of the people, who, one of the proponents and one of the, the people who proposed this uh, to the ECMAScript uh, DC39 committee. Uh, but going back to TypeScript ES, ESLint, um, so can you mentioned like the some of the rules that are kind of need the type information in order to be implemented, uh, like uh, the ones around... Um, uh, await and the ones around promises, making sure that, you know, there's a catch for every promise. Um, can you give additional examples of like these kind of types, uh, like um, TypeScript specific rules that need type information in order to be enforced? Yeah. And for the viewers who have access to any kind of show note or a search engine, uh, we have it all documented on TypescriptESLint.io. There's a dash in that name. Uh, there's kind of an interesting dichotomy between uh, the two ways that I think about rules. There is uh, the specific to TypeScript stuff, such as enforcing consistency of whether you use type or interface. That's one of those things where, again, the actual difference is very small. The real important thing, as you said, Dan, is consistency. And then there are rules that could apply to JavaScript and or TypeScript code, but need the TypeScript type information to work effectively. One of my favorite ones is the one that enforces that you write for loops in the correct way or correct syntax for arrays versus objects. Our rule no for in array says don't use the for i in syntax with an array because that actually iterates over the properties of the array and it has these weird edge right. cases and it's not great. You want to use for of. But the only way to know whether the thing being iterated over in any particular line of code is an array is to use the type type information. Because in theory, you could write this rule with just a single file in mind, but if it's like the result of a function that's been imported from somewhere else that imports from a node package, yada, 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 it's impossible to know what it actually would be unless you have the type info. 
So here's an interesting thing that occurs to me, and correct me if I'm wrong. Seems to me that when applied to JavaScript, ESLint is very local. You look at the specific JavaScript code inside the function. When you're thinking about TypeScript, you're thinking about types of other functions and functions that might be declared in other files. And TypeScript doesn't have, like in C, like .h files or stuff like that. It's the actual source code of the file. So a change in one file could impact the correctness of lots of other files, something that doesn't exist in JavaScript that I can think of, maybe does. I, I can't think of when it might exist. Maybe stuff with dynamic imports, I don't know, or stuff like that, that or or not, or any import, like that you're importing something from a file and then you remove the export that maybe could impact other, that, that's a change, adding or removing an export, that might be a change that impacts other files like with JavaScript. But other than that, I'm hard-pressed to think of any case or scenario in JavaScript where changes in one file might impact the correctness of, of other files that you can check. Yes. But that's not the case for TypeScript, if I'm, if I'm thinking about it. Yes. You've, you've hit one of the, the, the focal points of my, my life pain here, that ESLint was originally designed assuming that the ASD representation of a file a single file, along with your configuration, is all you need to lint that file. That is no longer the case. There are quite a few pain points because ESLint was designed with one way in mind, and now we've gotten to this more complex one. Uh, ESLint's cache mechanism that it comes with doesn't understand the concept of uh, one file changing might invalidate the cache for every single other file. Uh, mm. And then, yeah, it's it's there are some performance implications of this that mean that uh, running ESLint with type information in your editor and or on the CLI is not as fast as it could be because of the APIs that we and the parser land are given are a little restricted. I'm sorry, Before you delve into that, you mentioned a term that might be worth an explanation to some of our listeners at least, which is AST. Can you elaborate a little bit on, on what AST is and how, how that's being used by a tool like, uh, like ESLint? By the way, I really hate when I... I have a bad habit of mentioning a term, assuming everyone knows it, <laughs> and actually it's a thing 1% of people might know. So thank you for asking. An AST or abstract syntax tree sounds to me a little more intimidating than what it is. It is a representation of what's in your source code. And both um, TypeScriptLang.org and TypeScriptESLint.io have good little playgrounds that can show this. I really like the one in TypeScriptESLint.io slash play. Uh, if you have, let's say, a variable, let name equals Josh. That would be represented as a kind of a JSON structure where you have a variable with a name and a value. And then that value is a string. And that string has and so on. And that's what a lot of tooling uses to reason about your code. If we, let's say, were to write a lint rule enforcing let over var, we might look at every variable declaration, see its child in the tree, that is its kind, and check that the kind is, let's say, let versus var versus cod versus user. That's that's what tools like ESLint and TypeScript and TypeScript ESLint tools are built on. And the fact that it's a, a tree is because most 
code in most programming languages hierarchical. Like you've got a function, and in the function you've got blocks and statements, and in the state and you've like so you can go like a top-down kind of a way of building a representation of the entire code, uh, and it's kind of the 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 meaning of the code with the cement with the kind of the syntax being stripped out in effect. Exactly. Yeah, it's abstract. It doesn't ideally care about formatting whatever the character indentation is, and it certainly does not care about your type information. It's just the tree describing what's in the syntax. Yes. Cool. So, so you... yeah, so I guess Lint, I guess, breaks down the code into an AST and then does what with it? It passes that AST to rules. The rules then define a bunch of selectors, each of which run logic when they hit one of the pieces of that tree called a node. For example, the um, uh, let's say let's say the rule that says no var has a selector for every variable declaration where the kind is var, and then the logic, roughly speaking, just reports using the ESLint context. Hey, you used a var. Don't don't do that. You silly goose. Now rules can have options about how to report, and then that report might go to let's say an editor or a command line or some other service. But at the core, you have your AST parsing used by the parser. Then that parsed AST is passed to rules, and then rules can do whatever they want on whatever subsection of, the, of your tree. And I guess that uh, TypeScript ESLint needs to replace the a, the parser that constructs the AST because the AST for you know parsed JavaScript is different than an AST for parsed TypeScript. You know all the type information, etc., that needs to be like stored in in the in the tree. Exactly. Yeah. Interestingly. Um, similar to how TypeScript is, roughly speaking, a superset of JavaScript, the tree that our parser generates is, roughly speaking, a superset of the tree that ESLint's core parser generates. We would generate roughly the same tree given this just JavaScript code, but it might also have, let's say, an interface or a type annotation or something in there. Uh, so we, we do generate the same tree as ESLint core because our ESLint rules still need to work on TypeScript code. We don't want to have to re-implement everything for a different tree which is why we don't actually just directly pass back the tree that TypeScript's APIs would generate. That's a different format. Um, but there are core ESLint rules that kind of break when given TypeScript nodes. They don't really know what to do with them. So we do, in addition to swapping out the parser, have some rules that swap out ESLint's rules. So the parser, parsers are things that people write themselves, right? There, there are probably multiple parsers out there for JavaScript or for TypeScript, right? So are you using something that somebody else wrote or did you actually have to write your own or modify one that was already out there? We, <laughs> it's one of the sillier things I've seen in open source. We, we called a TypeScript API to parse a code file or text. We get the TypeScript format AST out. We then have a recursive piece of logic that converts all those TypeScript nodes into the equivalent ESLint AST nodes. Mm -hmm. And then oh, we pass God. back the ESLint AST notes. <laughs> Does anyone want to guess why we have to do that? Because their structure is slightly different? Yes. And then also TypeScript APIs don't know or care about ESLint. So if you want to use type checking, you have to get the corresponding TypeScript node for the ESLint node and pass that TypeScript node to the TypeScript type checker API. But you do the type checking? Doesn't, doesn't TypeScript just... Right. Why do you need to assume some of the onus of the TypeScript 
uh, work? Why, why do you need to do the type checking rather than have just TypeScript do the type checking? Yeah, now we're into that. They should be three different tools, right? <laughs> well, 15 different tools at the end of the day. Yeah, so uh, by default, no type checking is done. Type checking is slow. No one likes slow. By default, you just parse and pass back the notes. It's also much easier, by the way, to just ask TypeScript to do all the, the fancy schmancy parsing. Code can get complex, so it's nice having TypeScript do it for us most of the way. But later on, a rule might be given the TypeScript ESLint AST, which is like the ESLint AST, but more, and then wants to know the type of a node. And in order to know mm. the type of a node, you then have to grab the corresponding TypeScript node and then pass that to the TypeScript type checker. So that's, that's why we generate both trees and keep actually both trees in the parsed output, even though most rules mostly just use the ESLint AST. Ta-da. Interesting. <laughs> How much work are you doing on the parser then versus, um, I mean, you still have to parse the AST so that you can get the information you need from it to give people feedback, right? That you violated this rule. So how much of the work is on the parser? How much of it's on understanding and reading the AST? And how much of the work is then on giving people feedback? I'd say because we're built as a set of ESLint extensions, plugins, rules, and so on, it's actually not that much work for us to do most of that. ESLint manages the you know, running the rule and having a VS Code extension that reruns and so on. Um, and fortunately, because TypeScript only releases a new minor version every, let's say, three or four months, we just have to update our tooling for new TypeScript versions every three or four months. Most of our work either goes into user education, because for a while that was not very invested in, in our section of the community, or in rule maintenance, writing new rules, uh, fixing bugs and rules, discussing with people what should be a rule versus, and so on. How do you come up with new rules for TypeScript? We have a public issue tracker. I would encourage anyone who has an idea for, wow, I wish the linter would catch this too. Of course, first search for duplicates and other discussions, and then go on the issue tracker and perhaps file an issue. For the most part, we try not to get into stylistic battles. Like we, we won't enable, let's say, a rule that bans enums. That comes up a lot because types of enums are this controversial feature and it's a whole thing. But we will try to figure out what are the rules that every code base would at the very least want to be able to configure and have. And then if that rule is something that you can make a standard suggestion on, let's say don't use var, it's pretty, pretty popular as a suggestion, then we could enable that rule in one of our preset recommended configs. Yeah, but that's so, really a JavaScript rule or ECMAScript rule rather than a TypeScript rule. Sure, yeah. So we have a rule. You can only contribute or suggest a rule for us if it either needs type information to work because we're the only standard winter plugin that's popular and has type information, or if it's specific to TypeScript. So like, actually, yeah, the example I gave you, right, is like a little amp because that's really an ESM mm -hmm. rule. But there are some so, ESM rules that don't work well in TypeScript code because they're bugs, so we do replace some of them with our own rules, and that I can explain later. So hmm. with the enum rule, would you write the rule and then just not turn it on by default? Like, would you um, build it? We wouldn't build it, but we would encourage someone to use our, I think, well-documented tooling on top of ESLint's well-documented tooling to write their own darn plugin okay. and enable it on their projects. And I was wrong, by the way. We don't recreate the ESLint uh, NoVar rule. But we do have rules like um, no, no var requires, which says don't, uh, don't require something using var what equals require parentheses. We would prefer like an ESM import. Um... And what is your like release process? What's your versioning like? 
Uh, we release canaries whenever there's a new commit, but for the most part, people just use our Monday release of a uh, new version. So we release pretty frequently. We, over the last few months, um, have been kind of reacting to bugs and feature requests from a new major version that we released, which was v6. We generally save majors for uh, changes to our preset configs, of which there are now, I believe, six popular ones. Recommended, strict, and stylistic. Six. Wow, yeah. that's a lot. <laughs> I need to catch my breath for this discussion. It, there's a good reason, <laughs> set of reasons, but it's, it's a whole thing. So please give me a moment to compose myself before I tirade. <laughs> but okay. So there's the recommended uh, preset config. Every ESN plugin, or almost every ESN plugin, by convention exposes a preset list of rule enables, disables settings called recommended. Good. We separately from recommended, have a superset that's recommended type checked. If you go through the extra effort of telling our parser about your type information, what HTS config looks like or where to find it, then we can enable more powerful, but also more slow rules for you. So that's two preset configs. In v6, we split out the stylistic recommendations because as we've discussed earlier, developers don't like being told stylistic conventions that aren't for them. But we do have our stylistic recommendations, and some of them can be, I think, quite valuable for enforcing consistency. So that's four. Recommended, type-checked, stylistic, type-checked. We also have a lot of really There's stylistic type-checked? There's stylistic yeah. rules that require type information? Yes. That's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm just querying on our site because I don't remember off the top of our head. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Prefer optional chain. Knowing mm. whether something should be the question mark dot is, in theory, kind of a stylistic concern. It doesn't fix your bugs, but knowing whether it's safe to use an optional chain is a whole other thing. Also, prefer string that like starts with. Like it's not undefined that you can't, you can't. It, okay, I, I understand what you're saying. The property might be undefined, but if the object itself is undefined, that's a problem. Yeah, and then what if it's a string versus an empty string instead of like? Null, or what if its type is string or null or undefined? And then what if someone changes the comparison and so on? It gets tricky. You're well, starting. I see in your eyes. You're starting to understand the how painful <laughs> this is to try to make you know opinions or well, 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 look to be to be honest, the the, the the problem is not so much the the quote unquote pain of adding all the types. It's the quote unquote pain of also supporting the world that doesn't have types. I mean, if you're looking at other programming languages that uh, where typing is the thing, that there is no untyped option, then their linters are often more strict. And yeah. they're not complaining about the fact that, you know, everything is kind of doubled because that's just the way it is. Yeah. And those languages don't have flavors. You know, there's just C Sharp, which I will maintain is a beautiful language. Love C Sharp. There's no, you know, C sharp, but the way Microsoft interprets it, or there's no, you know, ES next for C sharp. It's just the version you're running. Yeah, but effectively, TypeScript has, you know, like it or not, and whatever you said about Microsoft, it's effectively become the de facto standard for type JavaScript. Yeah, which is a little painful to me. Um, I love TypeScript. I think it's fantastic. I'm a obviously a big advocate of it, but um, it's. It's a risk, not a bad thing necessarily, just a risk for a community to settle on one JavaScript variant or one JavaScript flavor. 
So I I, I'm Microsoft, also going to make sure it's separate. Isn't Microsoft like submitting it as a standard or something? No. Hmm, I also want to point out real quick, you said C Sharp's a beautiful language. We're talking about TypeScript. And Anders Heilsberg is actually yeah. the, the brain behind <laughs> yeah. both. So, Yeah. And it's funny because a lot of syntax in JavaScript today and TypeScript and C Sharp, they all learn from each other. Every language learns from each other. Yeah, right? they, like there's stuff they in all Ruby do. that informs JavaScript and vice versa. Yeah. Rudy, Ruby is a beautiful language. Just saying. Sure. Yeah. Right. Anyway. Every um, programming language is beautiful in its own way. Yeah. <laughs> Everything I'm, I'm is beautiful. beautiful the white space language or something. Way. Oh, yeah. White space. You, you know what? Well, white space is the only programming language you can write inside programs written in other programming languages. Yeah. I, uh, I used to work at Code Academy, and uh, a couple of years we did language courses as April Fools jokes, not pranks. They were real courses. My first year we did it on lol code, which is like a meme language, and then the <laughs> second year we did it on emoji code, and we actually exposed quite a few bugs in the platform having a language entirely based on emojis. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So um, I, I kind of want to move us along to um, if people want to use this. So I'm using this uh, project you know, or I'm writing my code in TypeScript and I'm like, oh yeah, you know, it'd be nice to lint my TypeScript code. How well do you play with some of the frameworks that either highly encourage or mandate that you use TypeScript? Do you get into some of the sort of semantic or uh, conventional ways of writing TypeScript there and, and make it all conform with the React way or the Angular way or the Vue way? I think we work pretty well with them. Um, I've actually been off and on trying to work with some of the bigger uh, reactor front-end frameworks to, to get them to recommend uh, using TypeScript VSM recommended rather than having not that. Uh, for example, Create Next App doesn't do as much around us that I, as I wish create it would. Create Next App is kind of mm -hmm. deprecated, I think. Oh, well, that explains Well, that. behind the times there, Josh. Oof. Yeah, I love Next.js. It's so stable. I sure hope they don't change how we write pages. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm a big Next.js. Don't you know, Next.js is the future of React. Uh, they even, they even, Vercel even said so themselves. Great. Um, <laughs> I'll, I'll come back on. We'll have a full discussion about server components. It'll be great. We yeah, have Next.js comp coming up. We had one. We had Dan Abramov on the show a while back. A, a ah. double header, like a two episode. It, it it was such a long discussion. It came out as two episodes. I highly recommend it. By the way, it was a really good discussion. Yeah. It was uh, in the spring of this year, right? April, something like that. But yeah, um, we we work well with other frameworks because we generally only have rules. Actually, we explicitly only have rules that are core to pretty much virtually all TypeScript users. We don't get into okay. situations where we recommend something that's uh, bad. Let's say with a specific framework. And actually, speaking of server components in React, there is one case where we're starting to get into a little bit of a, not conflict, but a, you know, a mismatch, which is that um, some Next.js APIs require that you define your functions as asynchronous or returning a promise in the TypeScript types, even though the functions actually don't really need to be async. Uh, and we have a rule that says if a function is async, it better do something asynchronous, otherwise that's an unnecessary async. Mm, but it goes, it goes beyond that. I mean... If you have use client, a uh, use server or use client at the top of an 
Next.js React file, it kind of changes the semantics of things that are allowed or not allowed in the file. It's even not just the TypeScript uh, ESLint problem. It's an ESLint problem, I, I would say. It changes the runtime behavior and what you're allowed to do, which therefore changes what some lint rules might care about. For example, the React-specific lint rules. But uh, it doesn't change how one might generate type information for a file. So you know, I'm, no I'm knocking on every single piece of wood near me in my room <laughs> right now. It hasn't impacted us yet, and I hope it doesn't. So but you going said, back to... You said, oh, sorry. It's just that you yeah, made go. that quick note before that... If you're creating, let's say, server functions, they have to be a sync, I think, uh, a sync or something like that, even though um, they are not actually, they're seemingly not actually used as a sync functions or stuff like that. Um, I, I don't remember exactly which parts of Next.js this applies to. I believe this is a Next.js specific thing. It's not a React specific thing. So I want to say it's, Oh, get server-side props? Forgive me. I've been too deep into the Apollo, or sorry, the uh, Astro space lately, so I forget some of these things. But I'll uh, give this is not a I'll, give, I'll give a different example, though. You've got uh, server dollar, both in um, solid and in quick. In solid, functions wrapped inside server dollar have to be a sync. In quick, they don't. Uh, you know, if you're trying to create ESLint rules that work across all these frameworks, you might actually need to have different rules for different frameworks. Sure. At that point, uh, if there was a framework-specific best practice or, or even necessary practice, they can either put it into the TypeScript type definitions, if that is, in fact, something that's type system enforceable, such as if a particular API needs to take a promise that returns, sorry, needs to take a function that returns promise, not function that returns anything else, then they can say that. And or they could create their own ESM plugin, like ESM plugin solid or ESM plugin react. But for us, we just enforce things that are common to all JavaScript. We don't care what the framework best practices are. If the framework is asking you to do something that's silly or unnecessary or just plain bug-ridden in a way that is obvious in the JavaScript syntax or TypeScript types, then we get into conflict. But these frameworks are written by teams that do a lot of research. So we have yet to see this actually be an issue for the most part. So if I then get into something and let's say React wants me to write format things in a specific way, right? And maybe I'm coming from Angular where they, you know, the kind of the way people do things there are a little bit different, but they're all syntactic, you know, the, your, your linter is going to be fine with it either way. But yeah, it's just not the way people write code in, in that particular community. Then those people would just, have another plugin that goes on top of TypeScript ESLint that is the Angular TypeScript ESLint and says, hey, we format our classes or whatever this way. And, you know, we add our properties this way. And it, since it's all happy, valid, you know, not bug causing TypeScript, then, then yeah, it can, I can have my linter on top of yours that isn't going to collide or conflict. Yeah. Fun fact about Angular ESLint, by the way, that's the name of the project that's Angular. Oh, there ESLint. is one. Okay. Yeah. It doesn't and shock it's, me. Uh, 
Yeah. And uh, one of its core maintainers, if it's not one, I forget how many they have. Uh, James Henry is also a core maintainer and actually the creator mm-hmm. of Type 2 PSLint. So traditionally, we've worked pretty well with the Angular side. Well, right. Angular was one of the first frameworks to actually yep. embrace TypeScript, as I recall. Yeah. Yeah. They were trying to do their own script and then they, there, there were reasons, but they switched. And, and it's been interesting to watch. So, yeah. But they fully embraced TypeScript and I think it's worked well for people who have been writing it. So. So we kind of stopped you halfway. You mentioned that you've got six configurations, oh, yeah. and you me- and we only gone through four. So we had the like, can can you like go back through the ones you already sure. mentioned, and then proceed to the the last two? Yes, the last two are my favorites, the juiciest. We have recommended and stylistic. That's the, the x-axis of two, and then we have the y-axis of uh, whether it's the regular one or the super fancy superset type check one. We then also have a lot of rules that are really powerful and often, but not always because of type information, but are a little too strict for everyone. Um, They're nice. I personally use them, but people who onboard to us in the past have experienced pain from just 50 million of these rules complaining. So we have a, it's (laughs) a legitimate This happens to everybody. They, They come in and they turn on a linter and they're like, oh man. Yeah. Yeah, I love those builds that you know have like a million warning messages, oh. and and everybody just you know you ask them one of the developers, oh, we just ignore these. Yeah, <laughs> you're training developers to ignore the linter. What could possibly go wrong? So we we <laughs> we split out we split out the rules that are a little more nitpicky or a little bit less easy to demonstrate immediate value from into configs a regular version and a type check version called strict. So we have two config groups, each of which have a regular and a type check version. And an example of a strict rule is a weight venable because it's not immediately obvious sometimes how to fix it. So it's it's great. We recommend it, but not everyone would want to use it to start. Now, it's pretty easy to get going with it, right? You just yarn install it. And... Eh, give or take. <laughs> no? <laughs> it's, it's, it's straightforward. Um, you... Tell your ESLint config that your parser is now our parser. Then you can also extend from our recommended rule set in addition to the core ESLint okay. rule set or whatever else you were doing. And that's basically it for the regular ones. For type information, you should also say the parser options object has a project property saying either true for just find the closest key as config, type two configuration file, which file, or a specific string or array of strings. That's the path or clause. That gets a little more hairy sometimes. For most small to medium-sized projects, yeah, it's straightforward, it's fine. For bigger ones where performance of type checking becomes a real concern, then there are some things you might have to do. And we actually have a, I think, really exciting experimental flag about using more optimized TypeScript APIs uh, called the project service that I'm hoping to land in core stable within the next year. But yeah, for, for the most part, it's straightforward. So is building speed a real concern? We talked about the caching problems that arise with uh, TypeScript, with linting TypeScript. It is, yeah. In theory, your type lint should only ever be slightly slower than your type check, your TSC run, because most of the work is running type information. ESLint itself is actually quite fast. That's one of the reasons why a Rust alternative to ESLint has yet to really get popular enough to overtake ESLint. It's not, it's not really an issue. But then type checking, especially if you misconfigure it or have some weird performance shenanigans with your types, which is possible, annoyingly, then 
then there gets more payment. But I'm, I'm hoping, like one of my big goals for, for joining the Type 2 BSN crew is that I don't want there to be any major you know, roadblocks or pain points that a lot of people hit. And this is the last of the really big ones that I want to tackle while I'm here. The performance issue? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, uh, so for, right, for context, right now we, we use some TypeScript APIs that allow us to manually instantiate what's called a project. That's the TypeScript representation of one of your TS configs or projects in code. And because we do that manually, it's sometimes a little difficult to, to fine-tune things for performance. For example, if you use TypeScript project references, then we have to do a lot of work and we don't actually fully support that. TypeScript has an API called the Project Service, which takes on much more of the work for generating projects and is actually what editors like VS Code use. So if we were to switch to the Project Service or give users the option to, we, we in our experiments, have seen that you can get up to significant performance improvements. I think it's like a, up to 50% faster or 30%, oh, some wow. large number. But it's a little buggy. So... Not ready, but very exciting. So you're not thinking about rewriting everything in Rust or something? (laughs) First of all, although I actually learned C++ back in college, uh, I don't particularly want to work in that low level of a language, even though Rust is beautiful. I know we said all languages are beautiful, but Rust is beautiful. (laughs) Um, It's just not my core competency right now. Take some time. But also because the TypeScript type checker is not yet available at Rust speeds or lower optimized language speeds. It's only written in TypeScript right now. And the closest project to recreate it in Rust, called STC, very, very exciting, very cool project, is nowhere near production ready on our timelines. So any any linter written in Rust or Zig or Go or whatnot would have to either re-implement all of TypeScript, good luck with that, or suffer the performance penalty of calling to code that executes in JavaScript land. And that's why it hasn't happened yet. Awesome. So is there anything else we should know about uh, TypeScript ESLint? Well, I'd say um, for anyone who hasn't overhauled their ESLint config in the last year, uh, go through our docs. I I highly recommend it. There's a lot of of good stuff in there. Um, I also recommend there's a great repo called Awesome ESLint, eSpecker slash Awesome ESLint, that has a giant list of Really great ESM plugins. Uh, one that I'd love to shout out is the deprecation plugin, which lets you know if you call to some method or use something in code that's marked with the JS dog at deprecated. Um, I'd say ESLint or linting in general is not the only thing that one could do to make code good. Um, I've been really into this tool lately called Knip that finds unused code in a way that would not, in a way that's actually oh, not really be nice. doable in a linter. Yeah, it's 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 shocking sometimes the things you find with unused code detection. So I'd say so that, take a look at your whole dev process and see linting, testing, type information, unused, et cetera. What, what parts of it haven't you looked at in your life? So that would be something like a post-CSS for CSS where you're going through and getting one of the things you can do where you can go and get rid of code that's not being used. Yeah, but it, it's really powerful. Like it'll, it'll find interfaces that are, let's say, exported from a file and never used or dependencies that you declare in your package JSON and never use. Or dependencies that you don't declare in your package JSON, but then do refer to. Yeah, so, so I exciting. just found an article about it on Smashing Magazine. NIP, an automated tool for finding unused files, exports, and dependencies. Yep, that's the one. Um, awesome. Lastly, I don't know if this will bring up a whole sub-conversation. I'm sorry if so. But we, TypeScript Lint, are an independent open source project. We're not sponsored by any major company, uh, primarily. We are 
a bunch of randos on the internet. Uh, we're also separate from the Islam team. So if anyone wants to contribute to us, whether that is time or money, we really appreciate that. Good deal. That's all. All right. Well, I'm going to push us to picks. Um, Dan, do you want to go first? I'll try. Uh, so, uh, you know, this is not fun times in Israel, to say the least, but I'm intentionally going to mostly avoid this. Also, just mention something at the very end about it. But uh, I'll try to actually talk about more fun things. So one thing I really wanted to shout out is uh, uh, this TypeScript Origins, the documentary uh, video that uh, recently came out on uh, OfferZen channel. Um, it's I've only watched it halfway, but it's really good. Really good. It's kind of reminiscent of the. Um, documentary about uh, Svelte that came out and also about React, the, those, those documentary, documentaries that came out uh, some months ago. So this one is also really good and I recommend watching it. Like I said, I only watched about half, but the half that I watched was really, really interesting. Um, some unexpected twists and turns along the way. So, you know, um, it, it turns out, at least the way that they put it, that uh, TypeScript was kind of the thing, like the first major open source project that Microsoft ever did, uh, which is really interesting. And they were really kind of, it, it was one of the signals of the changing of the guard from uh, Balmer to Satya Nadala that they could actually even do uh, TypeScript. So it's a, it's a really interesting story. So that's, that's one pick that I want to mention. Another one is uh, on the Programmers Are Also Human channel. They recently released a really, really funny video. Uh, These are the same guys that created the interview with a senior JavaScript developer, which was hilarious. So they now introduced an interview with a senior Rust developer in 2023, which is also absolutely hilarious. And I highly recommend watching it. It's so funny. I'm not going to try to uh, repeat any of the jokes because I'm just going to ruin them and, uh, <laughs> and you know, just watch it. And, uh, and it's great. Uh, and uh, I did say that I will mention something about Israel. So what I will mention is that uh, uh, President Zelensky of Ukraine actually came out with a video uh, supporting uh, Israel in its hour of need. And also actual uh, people in the Ukrainian army fighting uh, fighting in Ukraine also came out with support with the supportive videos for for Israel, and that's unfortunately a lot more support than the Israeli leadership has shown to uh, to Ukraine. So it's kind kind of really puts us to shame. Uh, I want to say that I'm really grateful for the Ukrainian people for their support, and I'm as almost on every show calling for other, you know, the people of the world to support the people of Ukraine in their hour of need. And those would be my picks for today. All right, Steve, what are your picks? Uh, Well, let's see. First thing is I'm going to second a pick. Uh, A couple of weeks ago, AJ had mentioned the movie Gran Turismo. Um, That was really good. And so I took my son to see it and we loved it. A uh, really good movie, apparently based on a true story. Did a little reading about it, about 
Short version is Nissan was looking for ways to get some drivers and they had a Gran Turismo uh, simulation game, really involved simulation game. And they picked some of the fastest racers from the game, took them to this academy, taught them how to really race actual cars and then took one and had them out driving. And that's the, the, main, the main character. Isn't so, that kind of the script of the last Starfighter movie from the 80s? Yes, yes exactly. <laughs> kind of. Well, that so yeah, that one game? that one was uh, based yeah on the the arcade game. I guess it was called the Last Starfighter. Yeah, uh, that was a great movie. I still remember that one. <laughs> yeah, um, I watched anyway. that with my kids. Yeah, and I'd forgotten about that movie. Anyway, and then after that, we liked it so much that we went back and watched Ford versus Ferrari too, which is another. Mm. Oh, I thought it was a very good one. movie. A good one. Yeah, uh, with uh, Christian Bale and uh, Matt Damon. For sure, that was a great story. Uh, so anyway. Good job, AJ. That was a good pick. Uh, and now for the uh, the highlight, the dad jokes of the week. Um, <clears throat> so recently I heard a story about a ship carrying blue paint that collided with a ship carrying red paint and 50 sailors were marooned. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's that, well, that one was pretty close to funny. That's, that's pretty good. Uh, I'm in my spare time, which I have a lot. <clears throat> I'm writing a book about all the things I should be doing in my life. It's my autobiography. Right. And then this one's sort of a tongue twister, so I have to say it slow. I asked my son the other day, I said, What do you call a bunch of indifferent pumpkins grown on a hill in Norway? And he didn't know, so I said, A horde of gourd fjord gourds. And he was floored, by the way. So those are my picks. All right. Uh, I'm going to jump in with a handful of picks here. Um, I usually do a board game pick. I'm not going to do that this week just because I've been traveling all week and I, I'm not thinking of one that I'm just like, oh, I should pick this one again. So um, let me kind of move into some of the other stuff. So I, I mentioned last week um, I did the... Rails World in Amsterdam, and uh, it it was it was such a good trip. Uh, a couple of things that I did that I'm going to shout out about. The first one is um, I went to the Anne Frank House. I hadn't been able to get into it before. Uh, no, the line out, can be terrible there. Yeah. You, well, you have to reserve your spot, and if you don't buy a ticket in advance, you can't go. So um, I paid for a ticket. I found out when they open up the tickets which is on Tuesdays and uh, I think it's like six weeks in advance so literally Tuesday six weeks in advance I got on and made sure I had a ticket um, and it's in the building where they hid right it's not where they were living it's where they hid and so you you know you kind of go through and they explain the whole Nazi occupation and then um, you actually get to walk through the space that they hid in and boy if that doesn't make you really think about how lucky you are to be where you are right i anyway um if you have a chance to go it's it's pretty amazing um, i'll interrupt you for a second because i cannot i can't help myself <clears throat> some okay. of the stories unfortunately it's incredibly sad and quite unsettling some of the stories coming out of what happened in southern israel are reminiscent of that Mm -hmm. of uh, yes. people hiding in their houses trying to quiet their babies while uh while terrorists were roaming the street and literally hunting for people 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, people were some people survived by managing to hide, and a lot, and many didn't. So yeah, that that story is very reminiscent of what yeah. just happened in Israel, which is shocking. Yep, yeah, absolutely. And some of the videos that are coming out of Israel are just they're really hard to watch. If you're sensitive to any of that, don't watch them. Um, I kind of wanted to get a feel for what was going on, and so. Anyway, they, they, they are, it's, it's really terrible what, what was going on down there. And yeah, they were going house to house. And, and anyway, um, I, I don't want to go too deep into it because yeah, I don't want to take this in, in a dark direction, but, uh, you know, be aware of, of the kinds of things that are going on there for sure. Um, but yeah, so also in Amsterdam, uh, one of the other things I did is I went out to another city that's about a half hour away from Amsterdam called Leiden. Um, and Leiden is a city, they, they had a little bit more Enlightenment thinkers back in the 1600s. And that's why the, the American pilgrims went there uh, before they came back and were, went back to England to get on the Mayflower. And the only reason they went back to England to get on the Mayflower at all was that the king. Uh, granted them a charter and basically gave them free passage be- because they were criminals for for their wrong think in England. And so they had left England. That's why they left. But uh, he granted them the charter to go settle in, in the New World and uh, so they could travel through England and, and were granted safe passage to get on the ships. And then one of the ships had trouble and had to turn around. Um, but anyway... Uh, I went out there and just kind of wandered through the city. Now, there's not a whole lot there that was there in the 1600s. Um, it's a fairly modern city. Um, there was, uh, or there is a, a museum for the American uh, pilgrims there. It's really just one room and it has uh, time period artifacts. Um, but it was really interesting just to kind of hear him talking about, you know, some of the things that I'd learned about in school and um, I think in some cases I knew more about some parts of the story than they did, but it, it was really, really interesting to kind of get uh, a perspective, uh, you know, in Leiden, you know, which is where they were living until they got that charter and went back through England to to get on the Mayflower. And uh, incidentally, I have three ancestors that came over on the Mayflower. So wow, um, wow, it, Yo, it was Royal kind of. If you, I don't know about that. They, they were poor people and half of them died when they got here. But, um, you know, I just, I, you know, you know, kind of what we're seeing in Ukraine and Israel and, um, you know, it's this same desire to just be free and live the way that we, you know, desire to live and have those opportunities. Anyway, it's really kind of been hitting home for me lately, you know, how fortunate I am because some people were willing to sacrifice, you know, to take the chance to take two months to come across the ocean. And then even then it was, you know, it, it was in Massachusetts in the winter, you know, the only real shelter they had was the boat that they had come over on. And, you know, some of it's, you know, miraculous, the, the way that it all worked out. But um, anyway, so uh, I, I kind of had those two things go on. Um, and then, you know, more on the code front. I was there for Rails World, as I mentioned. Uh, really had a good time looking into Hotwire and some of the things that they're doing with Rails to kind of enable some of the stuff with stimulus. And and so uh, 
yeah, I, I'm getting a little bit more into that. I'd really love to, you know, do an episode one of these days and just talk about, you know, hot wire and stimulus and the way that Rails handles some of the front end assets um, that we don't really talk about in, in some of the other circles that we move in. And then um, somebody mentioned the React documentary. Uh, they did a Rails documentary, the same people that did the React documentary. Oh, yeah. They released cool. it at I'll, Rails World. Um, I'll watch it. That's really yeah. interesting. Yeah. Thank you. I believe the, there's the, a one for View as well that's been around for a couple of years. It wouldn't surprise me. I don't know if they're all done by the same people. It looked like the Svelte one was done by other folks, but because um, I looked that one up too. But yeah, anyway, um, they released it because it was the 20th anniversary of Rails coming out. So. Um, Anyway, so so DHH is not the kid anymore. Nope. DHH is actually like six months older than I am. So (laughs) go figure. Anyway, so those are my picks. Uh, Sorry, I went a little bit dark on one of them. But anyway, Josh, what are your picks? Oh, boy. Uh, I've been taking notes on subjects. I wasn't expecting to give a movie recommendation, but one of my favorite movies that I was reminded of recently was is Drive with Ryan Gosling. It was mm. marketed as like this action thriller thing, but it's really yeah. more of like a psychological drama suspense film. And it's this beautiful contemplation on you know, the beauty of humanity and human nature and being kind versus evil to each other. Also, Ryan Gosling kills a guy in an elevator. So, so beautiful, beautiful movie. Great soundtrack. Highly recommend. Uh, nice. Yeah. Um, I was, I was recently at three conferences in order, um, JSA IE, which I believe is soon to be renamed to JS Comp IE, uh, React Live in Amsterdam just before you were there, and mm-hmm. Revo JS in Timisoara, Romania. Um, they were all great. I believe the JSA IE videos are up on YouTube now. Um, I think what's freshest in my mind is the Timisoara trip. We also went on this whole full day hangout excursion into a Romanian village where we had this platter of traditional foods and, and soika and raki and all this amazing stuff. And we wanted this horse-drawn carriage through the city or part of the village. And it was an amazing time and highly recommend. Uh, it's only their second conference, but they, they organized it, the UOJS team, incredibly well. Um, uh, Romania is indeed a lovely country. You do need to take into account that it's pretty huge. So, you know, yeah. getting, getting around, plan on, on driving quite a bit. Not as big as the States, obviously, but it's pretty big. Yeah. They were saying that they were taking, you know, multiple hour or multiple leg flights to get from, say, East Romania uh, to where we were in the West. Would have been 15 hour driving. Uh, but it also served to remind me, sorry to again go a little darker, that you know, this this is like many in the region, a post-Soviet country. And, and many of the people there remember the Soviet Union or having relatives or friends disappeared. Uh, so... They had Ceausescu was a pretty horrific despot rolling there for many, many, many years. I don't have anything salient to say in the matter as I'm not an expert and I don't know what I could say, but I will echo what's been said so far about freedom and the ability to live. All right. Well, thanks for coming, Josh. This was a lot of fun. Um, If people want to connect with you online, what are the best places to find you? Well, they they could not do that. But otherwise, my <laughs> my username <laughs> my username everywhere is Joshua K Goldberg K is my height or Kevin my middle name. I would encourage anyone to reach out and chat with me. I'm always happy to talk open source, TypeScript, or whatnot. And that's Joshua K Goldberg. It's on my website dot com, Twitch, Twitter, YouTube. Mastodon server is. Oh, you do stuff on Twitch. 
Oh yeah, I should mention I stream code uh, twice a week on Twitch um, when I'm not traveling for conferences. So I, my first stream in a little bit will be tomorrow at time of recording. So you you stream live coding sessions? Yeah, uh, coding is one of the things I do. It's open source in general, and honestly, a lot of it ends up being going through issues and pull requests. Something I can never figure out how how a person does. I mean, I I would feel so. I'm I'm trying to find the phrasing. Uh, Self conscious, I yes. guess, trying to, you know, streaming myself as as I'm coding. I one of my issues even doing pair programming is is how self conscious I get when somebody looks over my shoulder while I code. So I'm 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 struggling with the concept. Yeah, you see how much how much time developers spend googling. Things they, yeah, I don't they care about that. <laughs> I, I, it's just the, 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 the yeah, I don't know. It's just, it, it, like for me, coding is kind of a private thing. <laughs> I, guess. I, I started coding in part as a private thing in the same way that I play video games privately. I don't like multiplayer. I'm there to enjoy myself, to build something, to really mm-hmm. think and do it right. But I will say, Many different people do or don't get into live streaming or pairing. It's not something everyone has to do. One of the ways that people do to get into it that was effective for me, your mileage may vary, was I started trying to intentionally view it as a way to get feedback. That I'm not just very self-conscious and nervous, but also very neurotic that, oh my gosh, I must be doing it wrong. Everyone else knows things better. So Mm -hmm. I started pairing at work, even doing Bob sessions with the explicit intention of Everyone yell at me so I can do better. And then I took that mentality to Twitch. And now it's also beneficial because a lot of people <laughs> know what it's like to be an open source and don't understand why their issue with no reproduction and swear words is not going over well. <laughs> so between those two things, it's it's very useful. For me. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, we'll go ahead and wrap it up here. Thanks for coming, Josh. Till next time, Max out. <laughs>